How's it going? Before I uh, go any further, I gotta get something off my chest. I am, uh, I am uber pumped about the series that we're gonna be in this year. And I'll come back in a minute and tell you why. I just had to get that off my chest. Good to see you this morning. Uh, A couple of housekeeping things just to get us started on the right track this year. We have some exciting Bible studies coming up. So I'll start with the the normal ones. Uh, Men's and women's ministry getting kicked back off this month. Uh, This Wednesday night, men's ministry, 6.30. Kids building, food, fellowship, worship, great time in the word. I'm really excited about where uh, Lewis and the the men's ministry team is going to be taking us this year, uh, this spring. Um, But Wednesday morning, we're launching something new, 5.30 a.m., uh, we're going to be meeting up here, unlocking the church, and doing a study on the Gospel of John that will take us through probably most of the year, uh, simply opening God's Word together as men and, and, uh, and, and allowing God's Word to speak to us and, and rub off on one another. So this Wednesday morning, 5.30 a.m. to 6 is the warm-up where we eat, drink coffee, uh, wake each other up, and then at 6 a.m., Bible study begins and rolls till 7 a.m., and that's going to be week in, week out until further notice uh, for that's the men. The women's will kick off the next week with the Wednesday night, third Wednesday of the month, with all that they uh, normally do. But there's also a women's Bible study uh, coming up on Monday nights. You can look at your worship guide for the details on Leviticus. And uh, never expected to hear a women's Bible study on Leviticus at our church, but I'm super excited. Um, one of the harder books of the Bible to understand and to bring into life application, our women will be studying week in, week out. It's going to go hand in hand with the series. Later on this spring, we'll do the same Bible study on Sunday mornings uh, during the 1045 service. So I'm um, excited about that. A couple other things coming up. We're doing a, um, a uh, parenting, uh, partner with, partnering with parents, let me get the words right, Bible study uh, that will, will start here uh, shortly. Uh, and that's going to be in the 1045 service for all of us parents who, um, who on a consistent basis think that we're the worst parents in the world. Um, this Bible study is for you. Uh, you know what I mean? You get to that point where you're so frustrated with them and with yourself and you just feel like no other mom or dad is as bad as you and, and surely everybody else's kids are so much, okay, all those frustrating moments. This is going to be a place to come and to vent a little bit of that, but also to hear some counsel from both life experience and God's word on how we can be uh, better parents with these sacred little precious gifts that we've been given in our kids. So that's coming up. Evangelism training, they're starting another round. I think it's 10 or 11 weeks Coming up pretty soon, going to be in the 1045 service. Those details are in your worship guide as well. Uh, one last thing about uh, tonight. The, uh, the series that we are starting, which I'll talk more about in, in a little bit, um, is going to begin in Genesis. So there's a backdrop to Genesis, which is the creation story. Um, there's a whole lot we won't have time to get to, but, um, but a lot of us are incredibly interested in, like, the dinosaurs and how old is the earth and all those kind of questions. So I've asked Daniel Bray to come uh, tonight at 6 o'clock and uh, walk us through what the Bible says about creation and then do a Q&A where him and I come up here and, uh, and field questions about how um, not only what the Bible says but how science relates. And, and so if you've ever wondered how old the earth is, we're going to tell you tonight. Just kidding. Uh, this is the promise that I've been making. We'll answer every question. With something, we'll say something. We'll give you an answer, but uh, but we may not have all the all the answers. But it'll be a fun discussion tonight, and more importantly, it's going to kind of lay a backdrop for the next four to six weeks in our series on Sunday mornings. So a lot of information we won't have time to get to in here. Come tonight, six o'clock. A very simple service, uh, and we will be talking about creation. All right. 
I think that's all the announcements. What I want to do is I want to roll an intro video into the series, then we're going to get started. You guys ready? All right. Let's do it. Every great story begins with a voice giving shape to darkness. A storyteller speaking characters into existence, and it's good. In fact, it's perfect. Enter the villain, one who wishes to change the story, to bring death to mankind, to unmake the storyteller's good world. Our inciting incident where everything goes wrong the villain tells the characters they can create their own story, and they believe the lie. Death is sentenced, and the characters are enslaved. The villain is triumphant. But all is not lost. The storyteller is not idle. He has a plan. But it will take time and sacrifice. The people face extinction. Yet they are not swept away. They face death, but a substitute is given. They face captivity, and the storyteller provides their escape. Yet they remain chained by the villain. But a promise is made. A serpent is lifted high on a staff and brings healing. An unlikely king frees his people. From an ocean tomb comes a message of life, hints of a great rescuer, and then nothing. The story goes quiet. The people fear the storyteller has forgotten his promise. The rescue begins. The storyteller enters the story. He heals the sick, brings hope to the captive. He loves the unlovable. The villain plots his vengeance. He strikes, and the hero's life is given for his people. His promise fulfilled. The substitute is sacrificed. The people are again free and the hero emerges from his tomb. He gathers his people and sends them out as storytellers. More believe, their numbers grow. One story told over thousands of years. My story, your story, his story. So excited. So what is the story of the Bible? Now, don't answer it, just, just food for thought. If, uh, if you and I were to go out for coffee and uh, just chat for a minute, and I were to ask you about your understanding of the Bible, I think there would be a common conversation that would come up with almost everybody in the room. If I were to ask you, you ever intimidated by the Bible? Do you ever struggle 
to understand what you're reading. If we could just get to an honest place in conversation, right? I think the very common answer would be yes. You ever just open the Bible, God, I want to I read some of the Bible. I know it's supposed to speak to me, and you open it up in the middle of something, and you start reading, and you have no idea what you're reading. And you struggle to get to the end of a chapter or end of a paragraph or sometimes the end of a verse before you can say, okay, I did my Bible reading for the day, and I have no idea what I read. There are several reasons why I think that is a common scenario for us today in the current church. The first one begins with the Holy Spirit of God. We believe by faith that God himself has revealed truth through the words here. And so we need God to literally shine a light on it so we can see it. You've ever been reading the Bible and all of a sudden something just comes clear. It's like it just comes into focus. That's the Holy Spirit of God helping you. Okay, and that's one, one of the reasons why I think sometimes we lack understanding. We don't include God in our study, but there are a couple of practical reasons that I hope we get to see a solution to in this series. One is the way that the church tends to teach the Bible is confusing, if we could just be honest. If you get super involved in a church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Bible studies, your own devotional time, you're in five to eight different sections of the Bible in one week. And not only that, you come in on a Sunday morning, maybe the preacher is preaching from the Gospel of John, fantastic message, you're moved, you come back the next week, and now we're in Exodus, and no bridge is built between the two to help you understand what Leviticus or what Exodus or what Jonah have to do with the Gospel of John or the book of Jude or Ephesians, and so they're just, it's like there are all these different stories out there, and then we end up picking our favorites, the one we're most comfortable with, and that's all we ever read. Well, there's a a third reason why I think that we struggle with the scriptures, and here it is. I don't think we know the story. And we don't realize that, yeah, the Bible's full of all these different characters, All these different scenarios and little plots and stories unfolding and it climaxes and falls down and climaxes again and falls down. And don't realize that every word on every page is telling one consistent story. It's a meta-narrative full of little bitty scenes, right? Full of little bitty character sketches and stories, but it's one singular linear story. So what is the story of the Bible? Today's message is going to play somewhat like a movie trailer, okay? Uh, We're just going to get introduced to the series, and we're going to look at this idea that the, the, the Bible is one long story. So let me just give you what I would write up if I were to do a little write up then, you know, if you were to go into Netflix or one of your on demand and you want to get a description of the story of the movie, Here's maybe what I would write in one brief paragraph to summarize the story of the Bible. Here it is. The Bible is the story of the king who rescues his kingdom. More specifically, Jesus is the victorious king and hero of the Bible's story. There are tons of characters, right? Supporting roles, walk-ons, tons of other cast. But Jesus is the hero. There are no other heroes in the Bible. He is the hero who keeps his promise to rescue his kingdom by 
Now here's just some imagery for us. I've used this before. By unzipping the fabric of time. Now think about that. For God to step into our world means that he's eternal, but he steps into a non-eternal human body. If you could just imagine God unzipping time and just stepping into it for a moment, this is the incarnation of Christ. And so he steps into time and literally steps into his own story to offer his own life as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people, ending the reign of Satan. The theme of God's story is his love. God displays his love through his interaction with creation. The pinnacle of God's love, God's love is most vividly and accurately seen in the hero of the story, Jesus. There is no greater love, right, but that a man would lay his life down. So God displays his love through Jesus. The Old Testament then, if we were to break it up into big chunks, the Old Testament then first part of your Bible, it's pointing forward to the coming of a Christ king, okay? So you read Genesis to Malachi, essentially what you're reading is what was promised in Genesis 3, that one day the seed of Eve would crush the head of Satan, and that, that promise gets developed as this Christ king. That's what the Old Testament's saying to us. The Gospels then proclaim to us Jesus as the Christ king. And then the rest of your New Testament points back at Jesus to say two things. He's the one the Old Testament predicted, and he's the the victorious king who's going to return. And essentially, that is our Bible. Now, I want to walk more specifically through through the story of the Bible. But um, just to begin with, you can learn so much by just looking at the beginning and the end. And how remarkably similar... Genesis 1 is with Revelation 21 and 22. The beginning and the end are remarkably, and I don't think haphazardly, similar. Let me just give you a few of them. I had a long list here I was going to go through, and I thought, no, let's just hit a few. So here are a few. One, the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth. Okay, so Revelation 21.1 begins with what? God creates the new heaven and the new earth. Very, very unmistakably Not just similar, like exactly the same. Not only that, in the the beginning, God walks with man in the garden. Dwells with man. Literally face-to-face relationship with man. In Revelation 21.3, it says it like two or three different ways for us to get the point. God's now, God's dwelling will be with man in the new Jerusalem, in the new heaven and the new earth. God will now dwell with, live with, face-to-face walk with man. Before the fall and creation, there was no death. 21.4, Revelation 21.4 proclaims to us there will be no more death. Uh, Genesis 2 is essentially this first wedding ceremony. Um, That's not just like an added to the story. That's one of the main themes of the story. So here's what Revelation does for us. The first three to four chapters of Revelation remind us of the hopelessness that we have, living under the shadow of death. And then in Revelation 4, the question is asked, basically, who can fix this problem? Who can unroll the scroll? And so there's no elders, there's no men, there's no heroes, there's no angels who are worthy to unroll it. And there in Revelation 4, one is found worthy to unroll the scroll, and he is the lamb who was slain. 
And so here's what unfolds from there forward in Revelation all the way up to 21 is this get ready, here he comes. Get ready, he's gonna make all things right, all things new. He's gonna reckon all wrongs. Here he comes, get ready. And the, like the climax of that is a wedding in Revelation 19, which we'll read in just a moment, where the kingdom gathers itself in one place, all the people, and they make themselves ready for Jesus to enter as the groom. You have the wedding, Genesis 2, you have the wedding at the end, uh, you have the tree of life in Genesis, Revelation 20, uh, 22, you have the tree of life, and then you have God being worshipped in creation as, as we are bearing his image, reflecting his glory, and then in the end you have God being worshipped. So there's just a few of the links. Now, uh, Bill Clem from Mars Hill says, you know what that is? That's the arc of God's story. And, and, and what he says, what he concludes from that is this. If you understand that as the story, then God's story is never at risk. Now think about that. God so specifically has written the beginning, written the end, displayed it for us to say, I've got this. The story is never at risk. It was never a time where God starts a story, turns it over to us, and we're like, you know what, I think let's just write this our own way. We can do a much better job, and God's spinning the rest of the Bible trying to talk us back into his story. See, the, the story is never at risk. Now, the people are, but the story itself never is. So let me walk through this kingdom development in the Bible and brevity, and then what we're going to do is come back and look at the theme of Jesus' message. And then we're going to end with uh, a little, little sneak preview of the end in Revelation 19. So that's what we're going to do. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the pinnacle of his creation, we'll come back to next week, is man. Unmistakably, he's creating for himself a kingdom. And he tells them what? Go multiply and have dominion and go subdue and rule the earth. He creates a kingdom for himself of, of image bearers. Now, here's what happens quickly in the story, though. Man begins to exchange the image of God for the image of Satan. And this is in the fall. Um, we understand from the New Testament's description of Satan that he's basically, his identity is lie. Like, that's his language. That's his dialect. He is a liar. He's a, a truth twister. Okay, And so in Revelation 3, the conversation ensues. What, what's happening is as, as Adam and Eve are believing the lie, they're literally exchanging the image of God for the image of Satan. And this begins the rule of the reign of Satan here on earth. It casts a shadow going forward. And that's why it's so important that we read that promise that God makes right there. Eve, things are going to be rough. Adam, things are going to be rough. This serpent... The serpent that you've taken his image, guess what? He's going to be continually nipping at your heels. But here's the promise. Eve, one day, someone who comes from your seed will crush his head. So, yeah, there's a, there's a shadow being cast, but the victory is not his. And right now, his image is the one being portrayed. He, he's reigning right now, so to speak. But his reign will come to an end one day. And the shadow is cast. Now, the very next scene begins with murder, right? So that darkness, I mean, it doesn't take long. The darkness sets. Man's heart is wicked and self-centered. Cain and Abel, right? Murder. 
This builds all the way to Genesis 11, where man says, you know what, God? We're tired of you being our king. We're gonna make a name for ourselves and we're gonna build our own kingdom and we're gonna commemorate that with this big tower to say, we don't need you to get to heaven. We wanna be our own kingdom. And the shadow continues to go forward. And right after that in Genesis 12, God speaks a promise to a man named Abraham. says, I'm not done building my kingdom. You don't have any kids yet, but through you, I'm going to build your descendants into a great nation. But guess what? That's not the end of my kingdom. I'm going to take that nation and through that nation, I'm going to bless all other nations. I'm going to build my kingdom. And so God continues that promise moving forward. We get into uh, the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Things are looking bleak because this powerful nation is where? They're slaves in Egypt. They're slaves in one of the most oppressed slaveries known to man. And their existence is to build bricks for Pharaoh and, 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 and his kingdom. And they're building palaces. And they're essentially, they're, their existence is to exalt Pharaoh. I love how God enters into this part of the story through Moses. It, the plagues, right? You know what God's doing? He's displaying his power and his authority over Pharaoh. And he doesn't even have to show up in person. One after another, he's displaying his power over Pharaoh to the point where Pharaoh is like, I don't necessarily know who your God is or believe in him or worship him, but take your God, take your stuff, and get out. Pharaoh's freaked out, right? This powerful, self-proclaimed deity has just been shown up through all these plagues. And he says, get your stuff and get out. And then he pursues them. God's not done displaying his glory and his power over the Egyptians, is he? He says, well, I'll tell you what, Pharaoh, can you do this? Wah! Can you split a sea? And they're like, well, that was cool. And they keep chasing. He's like, well, can you do this? And here's where the story turns. God's people now begin their conquest to Canaan, to the promised land. And God's out front leading them with his glory. They're king. And they get to a certain point in the story where they say, you know what, God? We, we want our own king. And the prophet says, oh, I don't think you do. Yeah, we want our own king. Okay, I'll give you a king. How about Saul? Try that one on. And then from Saul, we get David. And then his son, Solomon. And then guess what happens to the kingdom after that? Divides. So the story continues. The prophets speak up. And say, oh, we need the Christ king. This whole king thing is not working out. The dividedness is not working out. We need a rescuer, we need a hero, we need a new king. And the prophets are proclaiming, he's coming. The Christ king is coming. He'll be born this way, he'll live this way, he'll die this way, he'll raise from the grave this way. This is how you'll know who he is, he's coming. And then the prophets go silent. There are no more prophecies. This promise God made begins to grow dim. Many begin to forget God, forget his promises. And then enters the new king, Matthew 1, 1. The hero of the story. God himself stepping into his own story to become the rescuer of his people. Now what happens is he dies. A very brutal sacrificial death on behalf of our sins goes to the grave, is resurrected victoriously. Okay? Then... But then something strange happens. He leaves. 
He leaves his followers here and he leaves. Victory over death, right? You can have this victory over death. You can be an inhabitant in God's kingdom and he leaves. What does he leave us with? The Holy Spirit and what? The promise. The story's not done yet. I'm coming back. And then Revelation climaxes with the return of the king. As I, as I think about where we live right now in the story, we're in that in-between. Like today, this moment in time, 1028 a.m., January the 6th, 2013, is in that in-between, okay? And so I was thinking about how to understand the struggle of living in that in-between. And I was, here's, maybe this will help you. Um, the, uh, how to Train a Dragon. Anybody seen How to Train a Dragon? Okay, this illustration will almost work, so I'll use it anyway. Okay, so... Uh, how to train a dragon, you have this, this village of people who are dragon killers, and the main leader, I'm not sure if he's a king or just an elder, but anyway, his son, Hiccup, uh, is just a little dweeb. He reminds me of myself in junior high, okay? Uh, except he's good at inventing things, but he's never going to be a dragon slayer, and the dad is always disappointed in his son, and, and, and at one point, he's like, if you could just you know, change all this, and Hiccup's like, you just gestured to all of me, and he's like, I know, change all that. Right? And so Hiccup just is not, and so he invents this dragon killing machine and dragons attack and all the villagers are out there killing dragons with their bare hands, their wooden shields and their swords. And, uh, and Hiccup goes, runs out there with this little Gatlin gun thing that he makes, this little, throws the little up in the air. And a night fury comes by and nobody's ever seen or killed a night fury. So he launches it, throws him back. He sees it hit the night fury and the night fury goes down. And he's under the impression, I killed it. Finally, nobody believes him. So the next day, he goes walking through the woods. He's, you know, woe is me. And he sees where the night fury went down. He's like, oh, I killed it. And he comes running up on the night fury, but the night fury is not dead, is it? It's dying. It's entangled, but it's not dead. Now, the rest of what happens is not applicable at all. Like after that, he feeds the dragon fish and becomes his friend, puts a saddle on him and rides him. That doesn't apply to the story at all. Here's what does. Um, here's what does. I don't know if you've ever killed a snake. But when you kill a snake, even when you cut its head off, it still looks alive for a while, right? I mean, the, the farmer's almanac says that they don't actually, the snake doesn't die until after the next full moon or something silly like that. Because why? Because the serpent will continue to look alive. See, here's what Jesus did in that 33 years of incarnation. Think of it like this. Compared to eternity, I mean, that was just a pinprick, right, in the, in the time that has elapsed, just a sliver, that whole 33 years of his existence. Here's what Jesus did in his existence. He literally entered into the story, stabbed the dragon, pow, and stepped back out. And the, and the dragon's death is imminent. It's going to happen. It's like the snake with his head cut off. He still looks alive, right? Like killed a snake a couple months ago in the backyard, cut the head off, and brought the boys out. Perfect dad-son moment, right, dads? Right, like, this is a snake, and then the snake goes, and the kids are like, Wah! and so I got to freak them out for a minute and go, okay, the snake is gonna die, this is why we don't play with snakes. You got that? Yeah, I got that. The thing is, the snake still looks alive after it's dead. And so you and I are living in this in-between where the, the shadow is still cast. There's still a darkness over the land. There's still oppression and suffering. There's still hate and evil and murder. I mean, the most horrendous things that you could ever imagine are still happening. Why? The serpent's still twitching. 
But at the cross, in the grave, in the resurrection, Jesus literally, like Genesis 3 said, he crushed the head of the serpent and left him there squirming in the dirt and said, he's about to die. I'm coming back to finish the story he's done. And that's where we live right now. Now, it's an exciting story. Yeah. I mean, that's when you open to any random place in the Bible, you're opening into a scene into that story somewhere. Okay? Now, what I want to do is I want us just real quickly to, to, to hear and see the theme of Jesus' message in that brief moment he was here on earth. Things that were said about him and things that he said. Okay? And just so you know, I started off with 107 verses and I cut it down to 106. Okay? So. Now, I think I actually took about, it looks like maybe 10 references. And what, but what I did is I pulled them all together into one paragraph so it would kind of read as uh, one linear kind of story. But I want us just to hear what was said about Jesus, what he said, and kind of hear the theme of Jesus' incarnation, his brief moment here on earth. Okay, so here we go. I'm starting with Matthew 4. You can see it. It's just got a smorgasbord of verses that kind of come together. So starting in Matthew 4, this is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He said, Matthew records, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, the first and last Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Pray then like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Soon afterwards, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. And then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And later on in a conversation with his disciples, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. On this proclamation I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then just a few weeks later, Maybe a few months later, he's at the Passover meal. This is the night he gets he's betrayed, arrested, and, be and begins his trials. It's the night before the cross. He's taking the Passover meal, celebrated with four cups. 
he gets to the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he drinks it and said, this is my blood. It's the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood which will be shed for your sins. They don't drink the fourth cup. And he says, what? This is just continuing on. I tell you, I will not drink again. This fourth cup is the, the cup of the restoration of the kingdom, by the way. He says what? I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We still get to drink the fourth cup with him. All of us at the same time. At the same time. Then Acts 1 begins this way. This is the This is the introduction of the church. He presented himself, being Jesus, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and guess what he was talking about? And speaking about the kingdom of God. Is there any doubt to the theme of Jesus' 33 years, plus or minus, here on earth? He came to proclaim the kingdom is near. The king showed up, and with him came the kingdom. I'm near to you right now. And this is not the end of the story. I've got a mission. I've got to cut the head of the serpent off, and then I'm going back to the father, and he's going to squirm here on the earth for a little while, and then I'm coming back to end the shadowing. I'm I'm coming back to end the pain, the deceit, the lies, the torture, the suffering, the murder, the hate, the evil, I'm here to end the shadow. I'm coming back to end the shadow with my return. Now, um, what I want to do is um, I want to take a moment to fast forward to Revelation 19. I don't know if you, do you like spoilers? Movie spoilers? Um, I think it's incredible that you can watch a trailer and pretty much get an idea of what's going to happen, but still enjoy the whole movie. Um, And so this is the end of the trailer where the spoiler comes out to show us a glimpse of what's going to happen at the end, okay? Now, we're getting to the wedding ceremony, God's bride and the marriage of his son, okay? Now, that's a metaphor to describe to us a couple things. It's the importance of this union, but it's also the excitement and all that comes with the oneness at that moment in a wedding. I don't know if you've been to a good wedding, Um, I've been to a few. I've been to some that weren't as exciting or good, but I've been to a few. I was at one uh, just this past October, uh, Brian and Allie's wedding. Love being a part of that. It was exciting. And, and, and being close to Brian, the excitement that was building uh, from week to week as it drew near. And, uh, and so if you know that experience yourself, right, you know that, like, like even though you may have, like, even dated for years or been together forever, there's still this excitement of, you know what, we're like, uh, we're, we're just we're gonna get to finally be together forever and never have to go separate ways. I remember those moments with with Hallie, ending those dates and those nights, going, "Oh, one more kiss, one more." Uh, wait, we don't kiss until we're married. But anyway, so we did. Anyway, so but it's like I, I know I don't want this night to end. I know, but just in two weeks we'll finally be together forever. Like there'll be no more walking away. We'll be in the same place and then. And, and then so once we did that, then we realized how tough that is. But the wedding ceremony itself, right, you're not supposed to see the bride that time leading up to it. Why? Because this is supposed to be exciting. When the bride walks, the, you know, the bride walks in the room, everybody's like, whoa, look at her. She's hot. And, and they come together to do what? To, to never depart. To say once and for all, finally forever, from this point moving forward, we're one. No more me going my way, you going your way. This is we're in on this thing. That's exciting. It should be. 
Well, Revelation 19 is that moment in time where God's kingdom, all of us, from every era, time period, in history, from the whole story, are all gathered into one place. And it's described, like just our gathering is described like thunder. And we're singing a song together. And then Jesus shows up. And so the, the metaphor is not to say that, well, we come up to the front of the altar and there's a preacher with a suit on and we exchange vows. It's to say that anticipation, that excitement of finally, finally, we're together. Finally, we can be together forever. And so that is Revelation 19. All right. I'm going to start in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God Almighty, what? Reigns. You, you see how that, that, it's just finally. There's an end to the reign of Satan. Finally, there's an end to the darkness. The king is here and he reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now verse 11, we're going to skip down to 11, okay? It's exciting. Then I saw heaven opened. Stop for a minute. Remember earlier when I said the incarnation was God unzipping the fabric of time to step into it? This is the moment of time or the moment in time that time begins to dissolve. When heaven opens, essentially what's happened is the clocks that have been ticking, tick, 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 tick their last beat. And time itself dissolves. Eternity is opening up and consuming this little story. And so heaven opens up and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. I love that. It takes me back to Genesis 3, where the promises made by God, Adam, Eve, things are going to be rough for a while, right? Things are going to be rough for a while, but I'm making a promise. One day, one day from your seed will come one who will crush the head of the serpent, cut off his ugly head, and he's going to die. And our proclamation when Jesus enters into that moment is to say, oh, you're faithful and true. Oh, you keep you keep your promises. Ha oh, ha. You are faithful and true. Wow. The one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him 
on white horses. I love it when the king leads his kingdom into battle. Love it. And not just in a symbolic way, but literally the army is behind him because he's the only one who can win this thing. The army is following behind him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name, or has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what they would say in Latin, ni plus ultra. There is no one greater than this one. And so when we read God's story, there are tons of characters in the story. There are some, 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 some men and some women we look at and we esteem. There are angels in the story. But none of those characters are the hero. There's a supporting cast. There are walk-ons. But this is the king of kings, the lord of lords, the knee plus ultra. There is nobody like him. And that's the story of the Bible. The king who comes to rescue his kingdom. Now, let's talk about our story for just a moment. First of all, first of all, the story of the Bible is the story. It's the story. There isn't another story. This moment in time, January the 6th, 2013, now 11.45 a.m. It exists in a sliver in this story. There is no other story. Your life is but a scene in this story. That should overwhelm you and it should excite you. Now, we need to be cautious with how we present the story. One of the places I think we fumble with the most is with our kiddos. We, 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 we use phrases like, um, you need to invite Jesus into your heart, right? Don't we use that phrase often with our kids? When the New Testament talks about this relationship between God and, or between Christ and us, most often we're in him. Not, not him and us, we're in him. And so we're not inviting Christ into our hearts as much as we're stepping into his story. We're surrendering our lives to him, to be lost in him, absorbed in him, to take our little scene and place it in his story. We're joining God in his story rather than inviting God into ours. Think about that. You yourselves. You're joining God in his story. You're not inviting him into yours. Now, the, uh, there's a couple of quotes I want to give you uh, just a moment. We are bent towards being the hero of our own stories. Every one of us. Some of us, it's more obvious than others. Okay? Um, I had an amazing turn in my life when I realized this. Um, 
I've been through two rough bouts of depression in my life. One was just off the chain, didn't know what was going on, complete denial. And then later on, it, it reoccurred again. Um, when I went back to uh, school, I don't know how many of you have ever dropped out of college, but in our culture, I mean, it makes you feel like a failure immediately. So I went back to school. Went out to Plainview to be with my granddad, to get good grades, to pursue a music degree, and to take care of my granddad. And I got to a point where everything around me was failing. Like I wasn't doing good in school. Um, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't doing good in relationships, uh, even friendships. And I had one friend at, at school who just stuck really close to me and was always a voice of reason and encouragement. It allowed me just to vent. And, uh, and, and so... Um, there was, towards the end, my granddad's health started to fail. He actually passed away in the last semester. And so I felt like a failure on all accounts. Like the family members would call me and say, how's he doing? And I would have to say, he's doing worse today than he was yesterday. And so everything around me was going dark, okay? And, uh, and so I'll never forget this moment where the light bulb went off. I was actually just in the darkest point of that journey. And I was talking with my friend. I said, you know what? All my life, I'm so frustrated, all my life, I've tried to be everybody's hero. And it, I just can't seem to get it down. And the light bulb, light bulb went off. You're not the hero of the story. Why are you mad at God? Because he's not making you the hero of everybody's story. And the light bulb, light bulb went off, and I went, whoa. That's a futile, futile task. Now, we all on different levels are bent to be the heroes of our own stories, to try to be in the spotlight. Like there's a lighting guy in our lives. Hi, Nick. He's our lighting guy up there. Um, It's like Nick's following us all around, and we're like trying to get him to put the spotlight on us, but he never will. And so we're always trying to jump into the spotlight, and it's like it moves, and and then it moves. It's like the, um, the cat and the laser, you know? You're like buzzing it around, and that's the spotlight. And we're always trying to get in it and go, ha, I'm the hero. And, and like, no, you're not. And you're like, oh. And like, for some of us, it's obvious. If you're outgoing, you're ambitious, you know, you're out there, you're trying to make a name for yourself, we can tell you're trying to be the hero of your story. But for, even for the introverts, for people who are quiet and private, you're still trying to be the hero of your own story. You just have a smaller story. We still like to be in control, writing the script of our stories. However bright and vibrant and loud they are, or even how quiet and subdued or private they may be. We are bent to try to be the heroes of our own stories. Now, here's a few quotes. Uh, First one is by um, Tolian. He's uh, Billy Graham's grandson. He says this. If you want to guarantee your life to become a tragedy, become the hero of your own story. You want want to guarantee that your life becomes a tragedy, become the hero of your own story. G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy says this, God does big things through people who think they are small. Think about all the stories in the Bible. God does everything through people who think they are nothing. And he does nothing through people who think that they are everything. Saul and David is a great example. Pharaoh, people who think that they're everything, God does nothing through them. But then God does everything through people, right, who think they are nothing. Oh, how much larger your life would be if you would become smaller in it. 
Think about that. You can be the star of your own script, the hero of your own story, this boring, half-rate, nobody's going to pay tickets to come see it story. Like, that was the realization I had in that college experience. Nobody's buying tickets to my show. Nobody wants me to be the hero of their story. You ever had that moment? You can, you can be the main character in your little story, or you can be a walk-on in God's. You can be supporting cast. These are the people who want to be actors but will never make it. The walk-ons, the, ad, the extras, Right? You can be the hero of your little homemade story if you want to, or you can be a a walk-on, an extra in God's. And so the invitation is not, hey, will you come, just ask Jesus in your heart. He needs another place to live. The, The invitation is, come join God in his story. Bring your scene. Jump in this thing. Like, be a member of his kingdom. Be one of the ones Right? Who's excited and singing when, when the king returns? Don't be on the wrong end of that sword. Be one of his. And I love it because you show up at the kingdom door, the entrance to the castle, and you're like, you look around, you're like, well, I don't, I don't have the clothes to wear in there. I don't, have, I don't have the last name that would get me in. I don't know how to conduct myself in the, in the, I'm better off out in the country. You know, I don't belong in the kingdom. And God says, hey, tell you what, come on in. I've got clothes for you. I've got a new name for you. I've got a complete new identity. And so our response then is, all I have is Christ. That's all I have. When we sing that, that's what we're saying. I've got no other merit to get me into the kingdom, but I do have Christ. I do have Christ. I'm going to end with a question. Um, have I made the announcement about tonight at 6 o'clock yet? Okay, so you're aware of that. You need to be here tonight. It's going to be really good. Um, for next week's message, if you want to get ahead, read Genesis 1. Okay? I'm going to do that every week, give you some reading so you can get ahead if you want to. Genesis 1. Here's the question that I'm going to leave you with. I'm going to pray and ask the worship team to come back up. It's for you. I asked myself already. I already wrote this and already asked myself. I'm going to, so this one's for you. Are you, okay, just if I could have like, even if I don't have your eyes, just your ears for a second. Are you living the lead part in your own script or a walk-on small part in a scene in God's script? Parents, which one is it? Your kids know. Your spouse knows, are you pursuing the hero position in your own story or are you pursuing this walk-on in the background who, if they never get seen at all, is okay in God's story? If I were to ask your kids that, I wonder what they'd say if I were to ask your spouse. But right now I'm asking you, are you playing the hero in your own story, trying to control everything? You'll get to that point of frustration. It may not look like mine, but you'll get to your own. And you'll realize nobody bought tickets to see your show. It's a lonely place. Or you can join the multitudes. You can be a part of this amazing, eternal wedding ceremony. Something that matters in life. So are you living the lead part in your own script or are you a walk-on in God's?
Let's pray together and Jason, the worship team, have you come back up.